Well, would you pray with me one more time as we get into this amazing, amazing passage of Scripture this morning? Let's pray. Father, the words that Jeremy has just read to us, with us, are too staggering for a mere man like me to preach. Uh, Here we see the center of all history. Here we see your purposes unfold. Here we see your heart revealed. Who is sufficient for these things? Only the Holy Spirit taking the word of God and applying it to our hearts and minds this morning is sufficient to be our teacher. So Spirit, who has existed from eternity with the Father and the Son, sharing in the love that we are getting ready to speak about this morning, would you shed that love abroad in our hearts? Would you make us to know the love of God, the height, the width, the breadth, and depth of the love of God in Christ, and fill us with all the measure of the fullness of God? Spirit, you alone are able to do this, and we ask you to do this because we know this is your great desire for your people, that we would know the love that, the, that God has for us. Change us by that love, reveal that love. Sanctify us in the truth this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on June 25th, 1967, more than 400 million people in 26 different countries via satellite watched the Beatles perform. And they had been asked to come up with a simple song that could be understood by all nations and communicate a universal message. What song did they perform? All you need is love. And while love is truly what we need, they're absolutely right about that, becoming loving is another matter. If it were only so simple as to sing a song via satellite to 26 million people, or 26 countries, I should say, 400 million people, and that solved it. Oh, if it were so simple as that. And while we're thankful for the poets who write about it and the singers that sing about it and the Hallmark cards that convey the sentiment of it, our world is full of wacky, irresponsible, and even perverse definitions of love that are used to rationalize selfishness, manipulate others, and even give evil free reign, all in the name of love. It is not so simple as just singing a song. It requires God the Father sending God the Son to die on a bloody cross. That's what it takes. That's John's message to us. This morning, because we are sinners, because we are fallen in our parents, Adam and Eve, we have lost the ability by nature to define, much less practice love, as we were created to do. We simply can't do it on our own. We simply don't have within our moral fabric the ability to love in that sense. Now, can we love? Absolutely. But can we love as God defines it? No. Not without not without God. See, here's the dilemma that the Apostle John, the best friend of Jesus, presents to us this morning. 
He says in verse 8, chapter 4, verse 8, God is love. But then he says in chapter 4, verse 9, the very next verse, we don't love. Do you see that? Verse 8, God is love. Verse 9, God sent his son into the world that we might live through him. Sorry, verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God. So John doesn't want to give us this picture that, hey, God loves you because you love him. No, he says God loves you because you don't love him. It's, it's this contra-conditional love. God loves, but we don't love. So how does that get remedied? How does God make us loving? That's what John's going to talk to us about this morning. How the love of God makes loving people. It's our only hope to become what we all deep down desire to be. As God's people, we obviously desire to be lovers of God and lovers for others. God has made us to be that way. But for even for natural human beings who are not Christians, who are not walking with Jesus or following him, they, they have a deep down capacity to love because they're made in the image of God too. And so this is a universal desire, but it's a very specific remedy. And this is the remedy that John is going to talk to us about this morning. He's going to give us three Three truths of how the love of God makes us loving. And here's where it starts. It starts in history. It starts with something God did over 2,000 years ago when he sent his son to earth to live and to die for sinners. So number one is the sacrificial revelation of God's love. Unless we start here, there's no hope to ever become loving. We have to start with the sacrificial revelation of God's love. Why? Because John says why in verse 7. He says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. So if we're going to love one another, we've got to get a hold of love that comes from God first. Why? Because as we've already said, God is love. So God is love. Love comes from him. God is the only one who gets to define what love is, and he's the only one who can enable us to love. So where do we see God's love most supremely? Well, John's answer is at the cross. Look at verse 9. In this, the love of God was made known or manifest or displayed among us. Here's how God showed his love. God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, into the world so that we might live through him. Look at verse 10. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, atoning sacrifice, for our sins. So that is how John says, God is love. That's how love comes from God. How does love from God express itself? It expresses itself in the sending of his only son into the world to die on a cross to atone for our sin to bear his wrath. That's what propitiation means. So here's a, a quick application on the front end of this sermon. There are so, so many people, and, and even we as Christians can fall into this as well, this way of thinking, that define God's love by our circumstances, right? We define how much God loves us by how much we feel like our circumstances are aligning with what we want. Well, God obviously doesn't love me because 
I'm not getting everything that I want, or this bad thing is happening to me, or my wife has cancer, or my children have walked away from Jesus, or whatever we choose in our mind as the definition of God's love for us. Well, God gets to define how he loves us, right? God gets the word about how he loves us. And he says to us this morning, listen, don't define my love for you by your circumstances. Define my love for you by my cross. Good circumstances are no guarantee of God's love at all. They say nothing to us about the love of God. You can be living carefree. You can be loving life, living the dream. And that says nothing about God's love for you at all. It's not circumstantial in the least. And at the same time, you could be filled up with trouble to your eyeballs, and that says nothing about God's displeasure for you. This is totally counterintuitive to us. you got to get this. you got to understand this. Circumstances, whether good or bad, say nothing about God's love. We don't deny that genuinely painful things can be in our lives and that genuinely joyful things can be in our lives. But the words of Jesus are clear. God makes his sun rise on the just and the unjust, his rain to fall on the fields of the believers and the unbelievers. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. Read Job. Read the Proverbs. It is absolutely clear in the wisdom literature of Scripture that we cannot judge God and his love or not love for us by our circumstances. So where do we look? Where's the basis? Well, the basis is God does not love, we would say, unless he has made his love known clearly in a place, and in this case, in a person. So the place where we see God's love is not in our circumstances, but in Christ's cross. So, whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, whatever our lot in life, if we're walking with the Lord, we can never call into question his love for us. Because he has expressed it supremely and perfectly and historically and really and factually in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of his son for us. So that's a done deal. He loves us. He gave us the greatest thing he could give. He sacrificed at the deepest possible levels. So this is the way Paul argues. If he gave his only son, how will he not also along with us give us everything that we need? That's the way Paul works it out in Romans 8. So why did he send his son? Well, John is clear here. He says he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. So our lack of love for God, which John has already said is present in our lives, our lack of love is blameworthy. It deserves God's wrath and judgment, but God has averted that wrath for his children, for those who cling to him in faith and turn from sin and repentance, who cling to him. He has averted that in the person of his son. This is how John Stott so helpfully summarizes the gospel, which is the good news of Christ, which is what we're talking about this morning. This is at the heart of the Christian faith. John Stott says, It is God himself who in holy wrath 
needs to be propitiated. God himself, who in holy love undertook to do the propitiation, and God himself, who in the person of his Son died for the propitiation of our sins. Thus God took his own loving initiative to appeal, appease his own righteous anger by bearing it his self in his son when he took our place and died for us. And this is how he summarizes the cross work of Jesus. He says, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. But the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be, but God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. That is the gospel. That is what we're talking about this morning. That is the sacrificial revelation of God's love. Here's how Tim Keller summarizes the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died in our place so that God can receive you, not for your record and sake, but for his record and sake. That is the gospel. So have you embrace that. That's where love starts. So dear friend, if you're here this morning and you've heard this at some level or but never been able to put all the pieces of what, what is at the heart of the Christian faith? What is Christianity essentially all about? Well, it's this. It's that God has sent his son into the world as an expression of his love, given him up to die, bearing the penalty of our sin, so that if you will believe in him and trust yourself to him, he will save you and reconcile you to God. Amen. And that's the hope. So believe that gospel this morning. You don't work for it. You believe, you trust, you give yourself to Christ. And you can do that this morning right in your own seat no matter what age you are, if you understood what I just said and you understand yourself to be lost and helpless as being under God's just condemnation for your sin because you have failed to love him and others as he has called you to love with the kind of sacrificial love, there's good news. You don't have to sacrifice for God to get him to love you. God sacrifices himself for you because he loves you. That's the kind of God we have. The God of Christianity is not come bleed for me. No, he says, come, I bled for you. This is the God. It's not, it's not about you come work for me. No, I came, worked for you. Don't come and serve me as though I needed anything. I am the son of man came to give his life as a ransom for many. The son of man did not come to be served, Jesus said. This is Christianity. All other religions say do. Christianity says done. Amen. It's done. And so that is the sacrificial revelation of God's love. That is the only love that will ever transform us. That is the only way that we will ever become the kinds of people that God has made us to be. It won't come from lists. It won't come from I'm just going to do this. It won't come from resolutions. It won't come from try harder, do more, be better. It won't come from any of that. It's going to come from you getting deep into your soul how much God loves you to the point of dying for you in your place. And it's that continual grasping, 
That, in fact, that love grasping us that enables us to be transformed. So that's the first point, the sacrificial revelation of God's love. We could spend the whole sermon on it. We should. It's worth it, but that's not where John stops, so that's not where we're going to stop. He has a larger point here, and that is to get us to be loving as God is loving. And so we're going to keep moving forward. But that's where it starts. That's where love begins, with a sacrificial revelation of God's love. Point number two, a personal reception of God's love. A personal reception of God's love. See, that's a, what we've been talking about is historical reality. It's out there. It's happened in history as a manifestation of God's love. But what needs to happen in order to make us loving is for us to personally receive that, to be deeply and profoundly impacted by that. And John explains to us the effect the love of God is supposed to have on us in a couple of different ways. First, look at verse 9, chapter 4, verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest. God sent his only son into the world, as we just talked about. But why? Look at that. So that. See that so that? There's purpose. This is the reason. So that we might live through him. Now, lest we think, wait, first of all, when God sent his son into the world 2,000 years ago, I wasn't even alive. So this is not talking about physical life, okay? It's not talking about you can't breathe, all right? What it's talking about is spiritual life. Well, why do I say that? How do I know that? Because of what he says in verse 7. Look back at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves God has been born of God. Born of God and knows God. Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God. So John has in mind, he uses different words for it, but he says, okay, so what does this personal reception of God's love look like? It means being born of God. It means knowing God. It means having been brought to life by God. It's all the same thing. He's talking about the same reality, which is theologically what we call the new birth. It's regeneration. It's being brought to spiritual life. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9 gives us a window. This is the only other place so far in this letter that he's used this phrase, born of God. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. This is back several weeks ago when Pastor Ted preached this text. Chapter 3, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. So that gives us a window on what this born of God means. God's seed, God's spirit. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So being born of God means that God's imparted to us in some way. When you are raised to spiritual life, when you are born again, which is, by the way, not a phrase that Christians made up. You hear about born-again Christians. First of all, that's redundant. There are no non-born-again Christians. It's Jesus' term. Jesus used that term in John chapter 3 to describe people who are his children because we need to be raised to spiritual life. So when we are born of God, when we are made alive, when we are brought to know God, God himself is imparted to us. That's John's point. He dwells in us and sheds abroad his love in our hearts. And his aim is that this love would be perfected in us. Notice, it's his love. Verse 12, if we love one another, God, God abides in us and his love 
is perfected. So it's God's love being imparted into our lives. Now, now how does that happen? Here's the fascinating thing. The love that you have, brother and sister in Christ, as a, as a born-again person, is no mere imitation of God's love. It is an experience of divine love and an expression of that love to others. You are loving with the love of God. This is an amazing reality, and we're going to get to that more in our third point. But get this so far. When we love God and when we love others, that is God's love. That is God's love operating in our lives. It's not like, well, God showed his love in history, and then that's it, and that's no more love now. He just he showed it, and now we got to just believe that and then try to work up this love because we keep thinking, oh, Jesus, you love me so much, i got to be loving. No, what it is is God showed his love, and then he brings us into an experience of that by knowing him deeply, by being born of him, by being brought to life in him, and as a result, we love with his love. So how does the fact that God loves us result in our loving others? His answer is, The new birth creates that connection. When we, just like when you are born of your mother, physically, and your father, you begin to take on the characteristics of them. Emotionally, physically, you look and act like them over time. Why? Because their seed created you. That's John's analogy. But spiritually... Why do we begin to take on the characteristics of God's love and begin to love others and love him? Because God's seed created you. You begin to bear the family likeness. You are a child of God. You are beginning to be formed and fashioned after his image, just like you were formed and fashioned after the image of your parents. That's John's logic. The new birth is the act of the Holy Spirit connecting our dead selfish hearts with God's living, loving heart so that his life becomes life and his His love for us enables, enables and empowers our love for others. We're going to get to this more next week and Jonathan quoted it even in his prayer as we finished our singing. We love because he first loved us. His love is primary and our love is a reflection and response to his. This is why John says, you notice how he, he, he's been saying this again and again in the letter, but he calls us in verse 7, beloved. He says it again in verse 11, beloved. He's reminding us that God's love is what's primary in this whole deal. You're loved. So even before he starts talking about how we need to love one another, what does he say in verse 7? Hey, loved ones, love. Right? That's what he does in verse 7. Beloved, let us love. It's the same. We love because he first loved us. And in verse 11, he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. That's the way John thinks. Young enough for a, for a child to understand, and yet deep enough for eternity won't exhaust. We'll never get to the bottom of that. That's the amazing wonder of the gospel. And just to be clear, we've been this nail over, there can be no genuine love for God or for others that is not anchored 
and tethered to the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now let's spend the rest of our time talking about how that's meant to impact us on a practical level, day in and day out. Number three, a tangible representation of God's love. Now, by this, I don't mean Jesus and his work on the cross. We've already talked about that. I don't mean that God's love for us is tangibly represented in the cross of Jesus, although that's absolutely true. What I mean in this point is that the love of God in Christ is tangibly represented in us, intended to be. We are to be the tangible representation of God's love. This personal reception of God's love that comes from being born again, made new by the gospel, this personal reception is to make us lovers of God and our brothers and sisters and really all men and women and boys and girls. John says it two times in his basic only two commands in this whole text. He says in verse 7, let us love one another. And he says it in verse 11, we ought to love one another. This love for one another is a necessary evidence and consequence of our being regenerated, of our being made alive, of our being born again. The historical manifestation of God's love in Christ not only assures us of his love for us, but it also lays upon us the obligation to love one another. Ray Ortland, pastor in Nashville, puts it this way. He says, the gospel does not hang in midair as an abstraction. By the power of God, the gospel creates something new in the world today. It creates not just a new community, but a new kind of community. Gospel-centered churches are living proof that the good news is true and that Jesus is not a theory, but real. Okay, so that's his point, is that the gospel, this, this historical manifestation, sacrificial uh, revelation of God's love in the cross of Jesus is supposed to show up tangibly and practically in every local community on the face of the earth, in the church of Jesus Christ. So that in the church, the world is being represented the love of God as the church embodies and expresses that love. This is what he says in verse 12. Look there with me. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. What's John talking about here? He says, the unseen God, while once revealed in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, now reveals himself in his people if and when they love one another. We can't see God but we can see one another. And so we see the love of the invisible God in the love of the visible church. God's love becomes the reality that can be seen and heard and touched in the life of the Christian community. So brotherly love isn't a poor substitute for the love of God. It is the love of God. God loves us through the love of other Christians. The brother who speaks a word of comfort to you, the sister who prepares a meal for you, the family who welcomes you into their home are the hands and feet of God. 
When a brother hugs you, Christ is hugging you. When a sister visits you in the hospital, Christ is visiting you in the hospital. When a friend weeps with you, Christ is weeping with you. This is John's point. This is what is the standard and call of us as his people. To think of ourselves this way as conduits and communicators of God's love. Now, how then can people see this today? Well, John says, no one has ever seen God, but then if we love one another, we are displaying God to each other. After all, Jesus gave the world permission, the unbelieving world permission, to judge us by our love for one another. First John, or John chapter 13, verse 15, right? By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Do you see? The revelation of God in the church, not least in our love, is the way that God discloses himself to the watching world. So from that, we learn this truth. People outside the Christian faith have a right to evaluate the claims of Jesus on the basis of the church's commitment to love. That, that's real, brothers and sisters. We carry the name of God on us. We have got to represent him well. We've got to represent him well. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that the world would see our good deeds as believers and give glory to our Father in heaven, Matthew 5, 16. So what happens when those deeds aren't visible? What happens when the world can't see us loving sacrificially? They have no chance of knowing God or being born of God. God is not glorified. God is not displayed. And we deserve the critique of the world if the church does not exhibit, exhibit visible love and practical deeds. We deserve it. This is why James says that if you see someone without clothes or daily food, James 2.15, and do nothing about it, you only prove that your faith is dead. That's why James can later say in his letter, James chapter 2, verse 13, that judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who's been a, who has not been merciful. A lack of mercy towards others shows that we are a stranger to the mercy of God. So this love that is displayed in us and through us is not a kind of sentimental, squishy, no substance, no definition kind of love. Rather, it displays itself in a concern for the world that we testify to the grace of God, to the glory of God, to the incarnation and to the cross work of our Savior in the hope that others will acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God and in turn share in this Spirit-imparted eternal life. Now, I know that's a heavy, that's a heavy call. But I, but I want to I wrap up on two notes. I want to wrap up by fleshing this out a little bit more, fleshing out this, what this love looks like, and then giving us comfort and encouragement to pursue it. Okay, so would you, we're going to bounce out of 1 John for a minute, and we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 13. When you talk about love in the Bible and how God defines love, this is the text. I mean, this is the classic wedding text, right? 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. We have not been here in our series through 1 John, so I wanted to turn us here because it gives us a portrait of the love that we are to have, the love that God has. When you read 1 Corinthians 13, don't first think 
this is how God has called me to love. First think, this is how God loves me. Right? 1 Corinthians 13 is first and foremost about God's love. So that means God's love is patient. God's love is kind. God's love does not envy or boast. God's love is not arrogant. God's love is not rude. God's love does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. God's love does not rejoice at wrongdoing and rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And that's true for us. That's, that's God toward you. So if you're feeling convicted by that reminder, man, I carry the name of God on me. I'm carrying it into my family. I'm carrying it into my workplace. I'm carrying it into my neighborhood. Oh, God, I'm so convicted. I want you to hear this. God is patient. God is kind, okay? So you, you need not feel condemned. You need not feel like I'm the worst Christian that ever walked the face of the earth. No. God is patient. God is kind. God is a restorer. And uh, God is not one who gives up, right? He bears all things, including our waywardness and indifference. He believes all things. He hopes all things. He endures all things. Our fickle attempts at love are not going to stop his indestructible love for us. He's going to come after us, and he's going to help us. So let's talk briefly about 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, and how we are called to love. I've got three general characteristics and then five explanations, and I'll go quick. Number one, here's a, here's a general characteristic. Love is not self-seeking. It's not self-seeking. We see that in the love of God, right? God was sacrificial. God didn't seek his Seek, in that sense, seek himself first. He sought us. Love does not envy. It is not insist on its own way. When we live for ourselves, when our greatest concern is life, in life is having what we want when we want it, and when we resent others having what we want, we will not love. When we are self-seeking, we will not love. Love is not self-promoting. Love does not boast and is not arrogant. If we're given to promoting ourselves, we will making ourselves look becomes our ambition rather than seeking to serve others out of love for Jesus. Number three, love is not self-absorbed. Love is not rude. It is not irritable. It is not resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. We can recognize self-absorption when we lack a sort of tactfulness and kindness in the way that we treat others by acting touchy and irritable toward others by holding grudges against what we perceive to be others wronging us, and even by finding devious pleasure when harmful or troubling circumstances fall on another person. So love is not self-seeking, it's not self-promoting, and it's not self-absorbed. What is it? Well, first of all, he gives us what it is. Let's, we're just going to unpack for a moment verse 7. Love rejoices with the truth. Love refuses to jump on the bandwagon of fake self-righteousness or, or feigned moral indignation by thinking and speaking of the wrongs in others. Love bears all things. It literally means it covers all things. Not by covering up sin, but rather love is able to put up with others' weaknesses and inconsistencies and even blindness. It doesn't ignore these things, but rather considers the other person in light of one's own weaknesses. We put up with each other because Jesus Christ puts up with us. That's the bottom line. They're street level. Love believes all things, not with gullibility, but with a confidence in the Lord that despite another person's weaknesses, God can still work in transforming ways. Love doesn't give up on others. Love prefers to focus more on believing the Lord's mercies to work instead of just thinking the other person can do no wrong. 
Love hopes all things by turning confidence to the Lord, his grace and his purposes, rather than casting aside those who seem to show so little promise of improvement and change. The believing and hoping are ultimately in the Lord, and as such, they overflow in loving attitudes and actions toward others. We can love those who are difficult to love because our greater confidence is in the Lord and how he is working in the details of our lives. And finally, love endures all things. Love is able to continue to work on relationships in the body of Christ because by the grace of God, the one loving perseveres in the relationship for the sake of Christ and his gospel. So you see how God's love and getting that deeply will enable us to put up and be patient and kind and self-sacrificial and caring in the face of all sorts of obstacles to that. And the main obstacle is us. The main obstacle is ourselves. And the love of God is meant to free us from ourselves, to free us from concern about ourselves because God is concerned about us, to free us from having to protect ourselves because God is our protector, from freeing us to have to defend ourselves because God is our defender, from freeing us to have to uh, gain approval for ourselves because God has given us approval, to free us from having to think that if we love or sacrifice that we're going to be missing out, guess what? You get heaven. You ain't missing out on nothing. You ain't missing out on nothing. When we get there, we're not going to think, man, I really wish I would have saved that money I didn't give to that, or, you know, I really wish I would have not given that money instead of, you know, saving it for my vacation or whatever, or what, or whatever. We're not going to think about all the things that we didn't get to get in in this life. We're going to think about, man, how I, how I was loved. How I was loved. And this is all. This is, this, I'm going to walk into a world of love. That's what Jonathan Edwards describes heaven as. Heaven is a world of love. And I say, that's what it was all about. That's what it was all about. And we're, of course, all going to have mingling of regret with that. But the Lord will wipe away all tears from our eyes and welcome us into his kingdom forever. So, but let's get after that now while we're here. We're left here to do this kind of work. We're left here to love. So how do we get there? I'm gonna close in the last couple of minutes with this. Let's go back to 1 John. And I want you to, I, I wanna provide a motivation here, which I think is so critical. Um, there's already been plenty of motivation discussed this morning regarding the work of Christ and how that's supposed to motivate us. And believe me, that is enough. But John, John takes us a little bit deeper, and it's in the first chapter. It's in chapter 1, verse 4, 1 John chapter 1, verse 4. And I want to come back to this because I think this gives us an insight into how we can love effectively and have the motivation for doing so. 1 John chapter 1, verse 4. And we are writing these things, John says, on behalf of the apostles. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. I write these things, John says, so that our joy will be complete. Now, I ask you a question. How is he pursuing his joy? How is he pursuing his joy? He's pursuing his joy by pursuing the joy of other people. That's why he's writing this letter. That's why he cares. If you want to find joy, you've got to love other people. The deepest joy comes when we stop looking for joy and start working for the joy of others. 
you gut your ability to be happy when you selfishly pursue your own happiness. You are cutting your happiness glands, so to speak. They have to be poured out. I don't think a gland can be poured out. Bad analogy. But my point is, to get in the economy of Christ, in the way the kingdom of God works, to give is to gain. To give is to gain. So we want to gain. We, have to, we should want to gain. We must want to gain. Jesus in, in, in incentivizes us in those ways. But we find ourselves by giving ourselves. So let me conclude with this. Try this thought experiment with me. Think about the Christians you know who are the most preoccupied with their own needs and desires. And then think about the Christians you know who are unhappy. I suspect there'll be an overlap. But at the same time, think about the Christians you know who think about others the most. I imagine you'll find them among the happiest Christians you know. Why is that? Because the more you deny yourself to love others, the more joy you experience. Ask Jesus. How much joy did he deny himself in order to love us? How much, lo- how much joy does he have now? For the joy that was set before him, Hebrews 12, 2, he endured the cross. Jesus was after his joy through the pursuit of our joy. They are not a contradiction to each other. They are absolutely necessary for sacrificial love. Jesus is the happiest being in the entire universe because he is the most sacrificial being in the entire universe. So by all means, and I'm not saying this, that you have to live your life in perpetual and ongoing self-denial. What I'm saying is, by all means, look, hang out with people your age, okay? It's okay. Hang out with people who share your interests, but don't stop there. Don't stop there. The distinctive about Christ-like love is the way that it crosses ethnic, geographic, general, generational, and social divides. Listen, we will not be the community that we are called to be, display the kind of love that we are called to display if people come among us and see us behaving exactly like the world behaves. They should see the old and the young spending time together and loving it. They should see ethnic diversity. They should see generational diversity. They should see social diversity. Say, what, what is that? Why, why can't I see that anywhere else? Why does everybody else get cliquish? Why does everybody else just hang out with people like them? Because they don't have the love of God. But the love of God demands such love. And don't do it out of sense of duty. Do it out of the wonder of getting to participate in the life of the love of God. Enjoy the differences in each other. Spend time with each other. We're called to love one another because God is love, because God has loved us. And when we do love one another, God lives in us. His joy is, or his love is made complete in us and our joy is made complete. That's the economy of the kingdom of God. Let's pursue that together. Let's pray to Father, thank you so much for your great love. How great 
is the love that God has, ma- has manifested to us, has made known to us, John says. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. We thank you so much that we are your children, adopted into your family through the work of our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam who came to undo what the first Adam did, to live a perfect life and to die a sacrificial death, to atone, to propitiate the wrath of God against our sins. And if you have so loved us, God, we ought to, we must. There is a covenant constraint upon us to love. And we thank you that we get to love. It's a privilege, it's a joy. Is it hard in this fallen world? Absolutely. Is it hard with remaining and residual sin? Yes. Is it wrong? Is it hard because of our, uh, we live in the midst of a culture that is driven by and and uh, riding on the gasoline of selfishness? Yes. That makes it hard. But greater is he than it, who is in us than he who is in the world as we were reminded last week. Your spirit dwells in us, and he enables us to live and to love. So spirit, do that good work in us. Even right now, as we stand to sing and rejoice in these truths, do a good work in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together. But as I ran, but as I ran, my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state.